Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. Finding income for your clients is tough. FS Investments makes it easier by designing solutions that help investors reach their income goals and secure their futures. FS Investments never settles, so advisors and investors won't have to either. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities and discover what it means to never settle. This is not an offer to buy securities. Investors are advised to consider investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. Welcome to the Dead Celebrities Podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Dead Celebrity Podcast. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We have a very special treat this week. Uh, As you already know from the title, our subject will be Mickey Rooney. However, in a first for the show, our guest is actually an active participant in the story. Joining me this week is Vivian Lee Thoreen. Vivian is the executive partner of Holland and Knight's Los Angeles office and chairs the firm's National Private Wealth Services Dispute Resolution Team. She's a litigator and experienced trial attorney whose practice focuses on complex trust, estate, conservatorship, and guardianship matters. She represents individuals, families, charities, and financial institutions in cases including wills and trust disputes, contested conservatorships and guardianships, breach of fiduciary duty matters, and elder abuse matters. Some of her high-profile cases include the estate of Richard Pryor and, as mentioned, the elder abuse and estate of Mickey Rooney. Thanks for joining us, Vivian. Great to be here. Thank you very much. So now on to the story. Mickey Rooney was an American actor, vaudevillian, comedian, producer, and a radio personality. In a career spanning nine, yes, you heard that right, nine decades, he appeared in more than 300 films and made countless television appearances. Best known during his youth for the wholesome role of Andy Hardy, which he reprised 16 times. The diminutive Rooney, only five foot two, later settled into a celebrated career as a character actor in roles ranging from the Os- his Oscar-nominated turn as a jockey in 1979's Black Stallion, and to his well-received at the time, but now troublesome in hindsight, turn as a Japanese comic relief character, Mr. Yunioshi, in 1961's Breakfast at Tiffany's. Rooney struggled with addiction to alcohol, pills, and most notably gambling his entire life. He gambled away his fortune and then summarily refilled it by constantly working on several occasions. He was also married eight times, the first of which was to Ava Gardner. So you know, despite his diminutive stature, Mickey clearly punched way above his weight. And the last wedding was to Jan, Jan Chamberlain, to whom he was still married at his death in 2014, though the couple had separated in 2012. He left behind nine children and two stepchildren and an estate worth only some $18,000. The story of Rooney's later years is tragic. His stepson, Chris Aber, who was his closest confidant, was accused by his conservator of stealing over $8.5 million from him and controlling every aspect of his life. Mickey was not even allowed to carry identification. The case eventually settled for $2.8 million in 2013, 
It later came out that Mickey was also allegedly physically abused by his wife, Jan, though she denies the allegations. Rooney became the face of elder abuse, at the time still a largely unknown phenomenon to the greater public, when in 2011 he testified before a Spanish Senate Special Committee on Aging, detailing his treatment. He said, over the course of time, my daily life became unbearable. I felt trapped, scared, used, and frustrated. But above all, I felt helpless. After Rooney's death, there was, of course, further fighting over his estate on the part of Jan and his children. So what's the fight over in an estate worth only $18,000? Plenty. Rooney's likeness rights represented a fairly valuable commodity, as did access to his SAG pensions. And this was an issue because uh, even though the couple separated him and Jan in 2012, they didn't actually divorce. So Jan was sought to be recognized as his, and treated as his spouse. Uh, Vivian, that's a whole lot of story and a fairly complicated web of abuse and family infighting. Where exactly do you come into the picture? First of all, that was a terrific, comprehensive, and short summary uh, that really says it like it happened. Uh, our firm came into the matter uh, just before, really before Mickey testified before the Senate on that special committee of aging. We were contacted um, at a time where I believe it was the pinnacle of uh, the abuse that Mickey was enduring at the hands of uh, Chris Aber and his wife. From that point forward, we initiated what we call in California temporary conservatorship proceedings, and in other jurisdictions, it's called they're called guardianship proceedings. So we had a temporary conservatorship in place. Then the permanent hearing took place, uh, and from that point forward, in February to Mickey's date of death, he had a conservatorship. And for those who don't know, uh, nowadays a conservatorship, I think like Britney Spears has had a similar, has a similar situation, correct? That's exactly right. Yes. And funny that you mentioned Britney because um, like Britney, Mickey's conservatorship was voluntary. So it's really different than someone who is borderline incapacitated um, and cannot make a decision for themselves, whether it's financial or on a daily basis about, you know, where they're going to live or what kind of food they're going to eat. In this situation, the voluntary aspect of it was really significant in that Mickey had all of his wits about him. But included in that was his acknowledgement, which I think was very, very difficult. And I think that speaks to just elderly people everywhere and people generally. It was a acknowledgement that he is vulnerable and that he needed protection, that he himself could not withstand this type of abuse. So that was really uh, material. I mean, yeah, that is really sort of an impressive and kind of shocking, frankly, amount of self-awareness that I think most people are capable of, frankly. Yeah. And uh, that's what, that's what made his Senate testimony that much more impactful because here you had somebody Mickey Rooney. And as you've gone through his credentials since he was a baby to death and the types of people that he has you know, been around, um, for him to acknowledge what a nightmare this abuse had been, that really uh, said something. Yeah. And if you just Google uh, the Mickey Rooney hearings for 2011, find pictures of him. He's truly beaten up with these covered in bruises. He's missing teeth. He looks like a, a boxer who just went 12 rounds. It's pretty messed up. Yeah. And, you know, we had the privilege of accompanying him to the Senate and he was, I know he's an actor, um, but the words that he, the testimony that he provided, they were really from the heart. And, um, you know, he, 
he was kind of a broken man when we met him because, you know, he's elderly. He knows he's not at the height of his career anymore. And he just wants to enjoy the life's basic necessities. And, you know, when we first met him, um, he held out his wallet to me. And that's when he said, look at my wallet, look inside. Not only do I not even have my photo ID, I don't have my SAG card, but I don't even have $1 to buy flowers for my wife. It was really mm-hmm. heartbreaking. Despite all that, he still wanted to buy flowers for his wife. Is very telling. Well, at the time he did. <laughs> at the time he did. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> um, so you know, we mentioned the conservatorship here. Um, could you just mind just giving us the 10,000-foot the view of what exactly that entails, conservatorship in some states, guardianship, as you mentioned, in other states? What does that look like for people? Yes. Same concept, just different jargon. But essentially, there are two types of conservatorships. One is of the person and one is of the estate. A conservatorship of the person means you need someone to help you make the day-to-day decisions in your life. Where are you going to live? What are you going to eat? How are you going to get from A to B to your doctors, your various appointments? Someone's got to help with those sorts of day-to-day type of tasks. Conservatorship of the estate is I need help with uh, making financial decisions, whether it's paying bills or making sure that I am getting paid for what I'm entitled to. Um, So that's the distinction there. And usually people have both, but it is not uncommon to just have one or the other. Yeah, and it's very important, you know, to even if someone has a conservatorship or a guardianship in place to sort of for their family to keep monitoring them and make sure everything is copacetic. You know, my main personal experience with, with this um, and with elder abuse is that, you know, my wife's aunt suffered financial elder abuse from her court appointed New York guardian. Um, so it was a retired yeah. judge who stole from her. So these things, you know, just because there is a guardian in place doesn't mean that, you know, it's, it's a comfort and it's excellent, but it's also still has to be monitored. Absolutely. There has to be oversight from every angle possible. And it's really just mortifying to me as an attorney when the abuse comes from these professional fiduciaries. And your example of a retired judge, I mean, that's just, I'm horrified. Um, but yeah, there, our elderly people had the oversight to begin with, then there wouldn't really be a need for these types of conservators or guardians. And that's kind of the fundamental premise of, okay, what can we do to stave off abuse and litigation and all of that at the end? My message would be it's about prevention and communication. I think that's you know, an important message. So I mean, obviously prevention first requires recognizing that there's a problem, right? You have to you know, put things in place so that you can notice that the abuse is happening. So maybe like, what are some examples? What are some ways that, you know, if I'm a financial advisor and I have clients or I'm a, a sure. CPA and I see my clients that I can maybe start to have an inkling that something might be going on. Right. So here's something that's really easy. Um, as people become increasingly elderly, they may have caregivers or staff or employees who help them, uh, for example, pay their bills. And one really, really easy thing to do would be to, let's say they're accustomed to having their caregiver or assistant um, write out the checks and send them out. Uh, and typically our elderly generation, they're not going to be doing banking online or anything like that. So we're talking manual hard checks. So I would say, all right, have your caregiver or whomever fill out the check, but still have the client, our elderly person, sign it so that there is still some active involvement and participation in that process. 
So assuming, you know, our elderly person doesn't have, you know, macular degeneration and they can see, then the person, there's accountability because you can have the bill, you see the check, you verify, and then you sign it. Don't delegate it all away. It's interesting that, you know, that, that sort of thing seems like such a small touch, right? Where it's just, just make sure that they've glanced at it once, but that's really the way of keeping like that's that's what has to happen right it doesn't have to be some grand gesture to keep them right just every little bit keeps them connected that's right and you know uh, you know our elderly friends they want to remain involved anyway so it's when they start getting beaten down and worn down and finally the act of paying bills is something that they give up and they acquiesce in that So they don't necessarily want to be excluded from that process. But while everyone is young and um, can plan ahead and say, this is what I want as I get older, and you can make a provision for that, that's the time to really talk about it. The prevention and communication key is not when, you know, you have clients who are 70 and 80 and where it's, okay, it's not too late, but there, there is a rhythm in place and a dependency that's in a routine that they're accustomed to, it's when they're younger. It's when you can talk about what you really want. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that you brought up the signing the checks things too, because again, I have a, yet another personal anecdote about it. Um, you know, I had, I had elderly grandparents lived around the corner from us, and uh, so we saw them all the time. But um, one of my grandfather, who lived until his mid-90s, uh, his great pleasures was once a month when my mother would come over and then they would sit and do the bills and they were like assembly line style. Because he you know, couldn't yeah. read except in larger print. So she would read him everything and then he would make out his checks. And he was like, you've never seen him happy. He's a grumpy old Russian man. You've never seen him happier. And part of that had to do with him being a CPA and just liking, you know, that stuff. But it was, you know, just seeing them together like that, it was, frankly, it was adorable for lack of a more technical term. Yes. No, that is exactly right. The boomers, I'll refer to them collectively. That is a key part of their independence. And so to take that away, and if you have to get to the point where you've got a court conservatorship or guardianship, that's heartbreaking. And so if you can save that off by having these really kind of basic steps in place, everyone's going to be a lot happier. Well, so the elder abuse is only kind of one part of the larger Mickey Rooney story here, too. There is There is still quite a bit of post-death estate litigation. And that is something that is also generally preventable. I mean, some of it is, is going to happen, but there are steps you can take to sort of safeguard and make sure that it's short and as sweet as possible. Um, can you talk about you know, what some of those techniques and steps are that, that you know, we can try to take to stave off a future estate litigation? Absolutely. And I say this kind of half-jokingly, too. It, it, was, it came as a bit of a shock to us that there would be litigation after Mickey died, considering how just minimal the size of his estate was. That also goes to show you, people don't necessarily need anything to fight about. And we were talking about Mickey Rooney, so his name and likeness is significant. But really, the only surefire way to assure that there won't be any litigation is to have nothing to fight about. And by that, I you can go the most draconian route and say, have no assets left. But that's not going to be the norm or you know possible in most situations. So again, um, to prevent litigation... I think it really takes a lot of communication. Um, It's easy to say, well, you definitely have to have an estate plan. Okay, but you have to have an estate plan that is comprehensive in the sense that the provisions in the document actually say what you want it to say. And by that, I mean 
there's a lot of technical legalese and jargon. And some estate planning documents are 50, 60, 70, 80 pages long. And when it comes down to it, the paragraph that say, where do I want my stuff to go? It's contained in a very short excerpt of that document, right? So we have to be clear. We have to be, I think, um, avoid ambiguity. We have to really think about not only where the assets are going to go, but how they're going to be distributed. So for example, here's one that comes up shockingly a lot. Some clients will use percentages, divide my estate and give 30% to this person, 20% to this person, et cetera, et cetera. Make sure the percentages add up to 100%. <laughs> I mean, that goes without saying, right? It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, most but, lawyers yeah, went to law so, school, so they wouldn't have to do yeah. math. So. <laughs> exactly. So that's something. But here's another example. Um, one thing that ge- tends to generate litigation, and it's not even about who gets what, because we've had fights where it's 50-50. So what's there to fight about? Well, what does 50-50 mean? What does yeah. equal mean? Does it mean... The- that's the, the Tom Petty situation, right? But what does the word yes, equal actually yes. mean, right? Right. Is it the King Solomon way where every asset is going to be cut in half, which sounds ridiculous, but those are positions people have taken, or is it the value? And at what point is the value going to be derived? But another way to avoid litigation is to not be overly optimistic about um, your family members who may not have gotten along during your lifetime, who you think, oh, once I'm gone, they're going to get along. So I'm going to name them as co-trustees and I'm going to make them make every decision together. Well, that's not going to work. That's something that we've talked about before, especially with, um, you know, the modern blended family that we're seeing more and more of with, you know, with the same sex marriage and adoption and adult adoption and different families and moving all over the different countries and all these things. These families are so complex now and they, you know, a lot of them are just kind of only connected by the one person. And, um, you know, they, they can get along for the sake of that person. That's their connection to each other. But when you magically sort of pluck that strand of the web out, the whole thing can very easily unravel because they've just got nothing in common once you remove that person. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it's incumbent upon us as advisors and counselors, whether you're an attorney, CPA, financial advisor, to have a practical conversation with our clients and to help them carry out what they're saying by a couple of steps to say, okay, so you want this to happen when you pass on, let's play that out. Let's assume that happens. Now what? What about this? And what about that? And to really apply what they're telling you is their desire and wish and describe it and um, try to implement it in real time as you're planning it. And I think that's where sometimes we as advisors fall short, where we don't take the time to really explain what the consequences of their decision might be. It's easy for us to just take down notes. Okay, you want your house to go here. You want this to go there. But, and if the client is saying, and ultimately I want it to balance out so everyone gets, you know, the same amount. Okay, let's talk about that. What if, what what mechanism are you going to use to calculate that? And then what if there's a shortfall? How and where is that going to be made up? And it's those additional questions that I think will really help our clients um, plan more effectively. Yeah. I mean, it's shocking. You don't realize how much sort of application of common sense you imply and just like everything you do all the time. Um, but yeah. you know, when you're working with a legal document and somebody who somebody wrote and somebody's saying that they're not going to be there to explain it and to apply that common sense, 
you kind of just have to go by exactly what it says. So in a weird way, there's like there is no common sense allowed. And um, yeah, it's almost right. in, like those things, uh, you hear the stories, those fairy tales about like when people make wishes with a genie and you know, they word it the, the way they think of what they mean, but then it comes out in this crazy other way that they never anticipated because they did it exactly like they said it. Exactly. That's very similar yes. to what can happen yes. here. And also yeah. there's no common sense with, rarely common sense with the recipients and the beneficiaries because they've just undergone a massive trauma. And they're not going to be, you know, they're not going to be in a great state to sort of sit down and be rational either. So it really, the document yeah. really needs to hold up under some fairly yes. heavy scrutiny. Agreed. And I would add that there is a shocking amount of litigation over what I will call tchotchkes, yeah. personal effects, just little, you know, and, and it could vary from jewelry, which can be significant, to trinkets that are worthless, objectively worthless. And maybe they don't even have sentimental value, but, you know, we've settled multi-million dollar cases, but we're still fighting about the tchotchkes. And to that, I would suggest, again, what you said, David, which is some practical advice. How are those going to be distributed? And if, if this were your state, what are you going to do to make sure that there isn't a fight about it? Because it's going to be such an expensive fight over these trinkets. Yeah, that's uh, another celebrity example. Right? The Robin Williams estate fight actually was largely over just his like collections and it's like his bicycle yeah. collection. And that was worth some money. But in the grand scheme of the Robin, the amount of money that was involved in Robin Williams estate, the bicycle collection is just like, who cares? But that those were the right. things that they were really fighting over because that was the stuff that was him for them. You know, the money wasn't yeah. him. And that's a different yeah. sort of compulsion and need to have than it is just, I want X amount of dollars. Right. These trinkets, whether they're very valuable or not, they clearly represent very different things to the litigants than they do to bystanders. And, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, I know that the advisors are sitting here and they're like, how can I possibly know that which of dad's chairs my client, you know, what I mean, cares about, or you know, the, the, the way to do that is to involve everyone in the planning. Too often, even once you get a client to sit down and create an estate planning document and to set up, you know, these, these, it, these vehicles, they want to keep it secret from their family. They want it to be, you know, they don't want everyone to know what they're going to get. Cause I don't you know. Sometimes they don't want them to jockey for a position or try to play politics about it. And you end up with, you know, like succession, the TV show, but you know, in reality, yeah. what is going to happen more often is that people don't have the grand fortune that they're giving up and that they're really people are going to fight over like, well, I want dad's baseball mitt from when he was a kid. And the way to cut that off, that's something they really could never have possibly anticipated when dad was writing as well is to involve the family and let it come up in the advisor's office when you're talking about it. Say, so what do you care about getting from me? And a lot of the times it's yeah. not going to be money. I completely agree. There is a lot of litigation and I'm not a psychologist and I don't have any kind of training in that area, but um, it does feel like um, since we work with family members so closely and so intimately on these types of deeply personal issues that there is a lack of closure um, based on some residual childhood event, memory, loveless event or something where they're trying to prove something else through this litigation and what they're ultimately going to get. But I agree with you completely that um, to the extent that our clients can talk with their families while they're planning and find out what it is our kids want or tell the kid, hey, I'm leaving you this um, or start to give it away during their lifetime. That would also be really helpful because then the transaction has been completed, so to speak. So if there's going to be some 
um, fallout, then you can hear about it right away. I think also, too, though, and this is human nature, people don't like to think about death. Or they think that once they die, things are going to magically work out or I don't want to deal with it. I'm just going to put it under the carpet and I, I don't want to have conflict right now. So I'm just going to avoid it. And it's kind of the all right, well, pay now or pay later. And you might not be around later, but your estate's going to pay dearly. And that can't possibly be what you want. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's also, I think, a lot of just, you know, I trust my family, which sounds like, you know, sort right. of cynical yeah. to be like, don't do that. But, you know, it's it's not just simply don't trust your family. But, you know, for example, uh, you know, as my mother gets older, I'm becoming more and more involved in her estate plan and her financial situation just because I'm an estate planning attorney. Of course I am. Um, and my sister is less involved in that stuff, but still in very much involved in my mother's life. But we make sure, like I insist when I see things or when I go over there to do things that you know, even though me and my sister have a fantastic relationship that, you know, I don't trust that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And she needs to know, you know she, I don't want her to be surprised by anything that, you know, oh, you were doing this this whole time kind of thing. You know, it's just like, no, like I'm, I'm not going to come over there and do it without you telling her first and then we can do whatever we want. And it's just stuff like that. Right. Where it's like, even though I trust my sister with my life. And, you know, she's, I think she's the best. And I, and I, don't, I don't think there's anything that could tear us apart. That's not necessarily true in practice, even though it is in my head. Right. No, that's a very good point. I think there's also, too, on the part of the parents, a sense of denial where, okay, they know their kids don't get along. And you and your sister are a bad example for that. But they know growing up, if they have a son and a daughter, they were never that close. They weren't friends. But the idea in their minds, they have this fantasy, like, well, I'm going to name them both co-trustees and I'm going to give them 50-50 mm-hmm. and they'll work it out and it'll all be good. What's there to fight about? Well, okay, if if mom and dad really had a heart-to-heart and were being real with themselves, they would know, okay, this is not a good situation. We cannot have them both be in charge of the estate because they're completely different people. And they don't even talk to each other. And I think if our clients are in denial about that, or they have this fantasy that things are going to magically work out, I think as advisors, we have to tell our clients and say, look, this, this sounds, it looks good on paper, but how is it going to work out? What, what are the, how are they going to make a decision? How, how are they going to implement it? What if there's a conflict? Who's going to resolve the conflict? We have to be ready to have those difficult conversations with our clients, because if we don't, then it's going to give um, attorneys like me a very twisted form of job security. Well, yeah, it's like you're sort of speaking against your own interests here a little bit. <laughs> I, I am, and I'm very comfortable about that because <laughs> the the cases and the fighting just there it's endless. And even with the clients who recognize that they have to settle, they just can't bring themselves to do it. You know, if if the brother gets this diamond ring, well, then I have to get this other ring, and if I don't, then forget it. And they're yeah, going to blow up a multi million dollar settlement for that. And ultimately, it probably has nothing to do with the rings at all. And those are just sort of happen to be the vessels through which some other fight is happening. All right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it's really, I think, ultimately, what, what are, are kind of a lesson here is, you know, these are difficult conversations and this is uncomfortable stuff to do. Um, and But a lot of clients get in trouble because they want to avoid something that's a little uncomfortable while they're alive. And then that kind of butterfly effects and has, you know, and turns into like a, a little problem that would have been a little annoying and a little awkward when we were alive. And that was a big fight after I'm dead. And it's costing, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars. Um, that's so right. that's, you know, it's really like a little pain now taking the medicine now can be, you know, really prevent a lot. Right. And you know, we're just about out of time. So I'm just going to do what I do with all my guests here and just put you right on the spot. 
I mean, so there's sort of one lesson for advisors in terms of you know avoiding litigation and, and you know trying to make sure that these fights, to the best of their ability, are are either don't happen or as short and sweet as they possibly can be. Well, what's the one biggest piece of advice you can give? One is my half serious one, which is spend all your money, make sure there's nothing to fight about at the end, but that's not realistic. Um, the other one would be communication. Communication during the lifetime to all involved. That's it. Communication. It's simple, sounding simple, but it's not necessarily as simple as it sounds. It's very important. I'd like to uh Absolutely. I'd like to thank our guest. Vivian Litharine for taking the time to chat with us today. I think this was a very, uh, not really how I envisioned the podcast necessarily when I started it, but I'm, I think it's kind of cool that it's going in this direction a little bit, that we've actually had someone on who was uh, not just sort of prognosticating about one of these things, but was actually there on the ground and, and, and in it. So, you know, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and your insight with us, Vivian. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's all our time, folks. Um, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. Finding income for your clients is tough. FS Investments makes it easier by designing solutions that help investors reach their income goals and secure their futures. FS Investments never settles, so advisors and investors won't have to either. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities and discover what it means to never settle. This is not an offer to buy securities. Investors are advised to consider investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing.